All right, church. So we are continuing our march through the book of Romans, and we're in the section from Romans chapter 12 through the end of it, Romans chapter 16, which we're titling Ordinary Christianity. And in this section, we're really talking about what that video just showed us, that all of life is to be presented to God as an act of worship. And on the video, my favorite part was the sizzling bacon. I don't know if you noticed that part, but that is an act of worship when you wake up to the smell of bacon in your home. Um, But everything is about worship, and that's really what this section is about. And so if you are somebody who's investigating God, if you're somebody who's investigating Christianity, if you're somebody who is here as a guest and you're kind of just not sure what you believe, uh, you're welcome here, number one. And number two, it's really great for you to be here during this section because in this section, you get to see what the Bible commands Christians to be. You get to see what Christianity is all about, how it's played out. Christianity is not just something that happens on Sundays. It's something that's supposed to happen every day of the week. And so this is uh, the text that we're in today. So if you don't have a Bible, open open up one of the Bibles we said around the room to Romans 13, which is on 948 on those Bibles around the room. Now we come to a difficult section of Scripture today, don't we, church? A section in which Paul calls... Uh, the church in Rome to submit to governing authorities. And, you know, in my neighborhood, there's a lot of kids. There's a lot of kids in my neighborhood, and they're always playing and having a good time outside. And every once in a while, I'll hear one of them say, you're not the boss of me. You guys know what I'm talking about, don't you? This is something that we say as children. We say this to somebody else when we don't like them telling us what to do. It's something that we say to other people when they try to uh, tell us we can't do something we want to do. And so children say it to each other. And children say it to their teachers. And children say it to their coaches. And maybe even children have said it to you as parents. You're not the boss of me. You see, because inside their hearts is this attitude that says, I don't want to be told what to do. Now, here's the thing. We don't, grow out, we, we don't grow out of that. Even as adults, we have this attitude in which we say, you're not the boss of me. And it's for that reason in which Paul wrote this section of Scripture to the Roman church. Because there was people in the Roman church who, they were Christians, they believed in Jesus, they, they had submitted their lives to Jesus, but they weren't friends with the, the civil authorities of Rome. Rome hated them. Many of them had been kicked out of Rome because they had a Jewish ethnicity and they were recently allowed to return. Uh, The Romans were pagans. They would use tax dollars to fund pagan worship. Uh, Rome was known as like the sin city of the day and all the politicians and and all the ones in authority participated in all the things that God said was was not good. And many of these Christians in, in the city of Rome were mistreated and marginalized. And so I could just imagine them going to, you know, with the mindset of Rome. You know what? I belong to Jesus. Rome is not the boss of me. I don't need to pay taxes. I don't need to show them honor. I don't need to show respect. Rome is not the boss of me. I belong to Jesus. And Paul lovingly and gently corrects them here. He says, well, if you belong to God, then one thing you need to know is that all authorities come from God. And if you trust God's loving authority, you will submit to man's governing authority. And that is the point of this text. 
I'm going to steal a line from a friend of mine, Pastor Andrew Cole, who's a pastor at the Carson Church. He said, basically what Paul is trying to tell them is if you're going to be a Christian, you need to commit to submit. Commit to submit. All right? And so we're going to get into this text. I feel compelled to say something right before we jump in. I'm afraid as your pastor that before we go into the word, you're going to be preoccupied with a bunch of what ifs. What if the government does this? What if the government does this? What if the government does this? And it's going to miss you. You're going to miss what Paul is trying to say to you today and tomorrow and next week. So I'm asking that you would set aside those what ifs. We're going to get to them later in the sermon, but set them aside for now so that you can hear the words of God. Okay, church? You tracking? Yes? All right, let's do this. Paul starts out, verse one. Oh, by the way, we're going to ask three questions from this text. What does it mean? Uh, what does God want and why does it matter? First of all, what does it mean? Uh, Paul says, verse one, let every person be subject to governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but, but to bad. This passage shows us Number one, what does it mean? That God cares about civil authorities. He cares about government because he cares about you. The next line says, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do good or then do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. Government and civil authorities. And when he says civil authorities, he's talking about Nero for Rome. He's talking about the soldiers in the army. He's talking about the officers. So in our day, it's the president. It's the the Congress making laws. It's the judges. It's the police officers. It's the soldiers. That's who he's talking about. And what Paul just said is God cares. Government and civil authorities are God's ideas, not man's. And what he's getting at is not that God approves of all the actions and is pleased by all the actions, of governmental leaders, but that those governmental leaders have authority that's derivative from God's authority. In other words, the role of government and civil authority is to provide an atmosphere for human flourishing. That's the role. And you only appreciate this if you've had the opportunity, the the negative opportunity of living in a place where there was no civil authority or where there was corrupt civil authority. It's only when you live in a place of corruption that you can appreciate a good government, even if it's not perfect. And you see, that's what God has given us. God gives us government to curb evil. Can you imagine a world? Now, I know some of you like hardcore conservatives like, I can imagine a world with no government. But like, seriously, think about it. Can you imagine a world with no police officers? with no army, with no fire department? Can you imagine a, a world where there is no judge? It would, be, it would be chaos, wouldn't it? But because God cares about human flourishing, because God cares about people being safe, God has instituted authority, and that authority is supposed to work for the common good of humanity. So it comes from God. It's, it's God's idea. 
And I want you to notice something. He says that these authorities are God's servant. He says it three times, uh, two times in one way and one time in another. He says, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Speaking of officers and, and judges. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the do- wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God. What he just said there three times is this, is that the authorities are servants of God. When the word says servants there, it comes from the Greek word diakonos, which is where we get the the office in the church deacon. And when it says minister, it's the same word that's used for priest. And so in other words, what God just said is there's 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 deacons and pastors in the church, and then in the world, there's deacons and pastors in the world, and deacons and pastors in the world are the authorities of this world, the authorities of our government. So the president, the Congress, police officers, soldiers, if you're one of those people in this room, I know you're not the president, but if you're one of the other people in this room, you are a minister of God a minister of God. And so why does God do that? Because he cares. He cares. And so Paul, before he gets into this idea of telling them why, like you need to submit, he tells them uh, why. He, he calls for a perspective change. He says, you know, don't just regard the police as Mr. No Fun. Think of the police as a minister of God. That's what they're, they're, they're there to protect the peace and maintain justice. Um, so God cares. Secondly, Paul is trying to show us what this means is this. God is very big. He's big. He's bigger than all authorities. He says, for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Do you know who was in office as emperor when Paul wrote this letter? A lovely man named Nero. Now, at this time, Nero had not started persecuting the Christians, but he was still off his rocker. He was crazy by all accounts of history. A a decade or so later, he would start killing Christians. So much so, like he hated Christians so bad that he would take them captive and then put them in his garden and light them on fire at night to light his pathways. This guy was crazy. And yet Paul writes that there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Why does he write that? Because in God's providence, God wants Paul to write this to assure Christians that in trying times when you have a wackadoodle in office, he's still in control. And what that means for us is whether your guy's in office now or he's not, or whether you have a, a dictator who's terrible or or whatever, what it shows us is that God is still in control. God's not having an uh uh-oh moment. I didn't see that coming. (laughs) Recently, I've been cooking eggs and I put tapatio in my eggs. Actually, it's Cholula. Cholula's better. I put Cholula in my eggs. And uh, then I do other stuff and a, a few times it gets out of control and it starts bubbling everywhere. And my wife comes in and it makes a mess of the stove because I wasn't paying attention. There's no moment like that for God in heaven. 
He's not like, I set this person in rule, and then he's going over doing something else. He's like, uh-oh, I didn't know Nero was going to do that. Like, there's no uh-oh moments for God. God is sovereignly working every act of history for his glory and your good. And so this is an invitation for us to trust that God is big. Even when things seem terrible, even when things are going to hell in a handbasket, we entrust ourselves to the God of heaven who's in control of all things. That's what it means to be a Christian. He's big, very, very big. Do you believe this? Do your words about the civil authorities in office testify that you believe that God is in control? Or would they testify that you're freaking out? Believe that God is in control. He's big. Okay, so that's what this means. Okay, so what does God want? That's the question that we should be asking. As Americans, we're trained to ask, what do I want? But as Christians, we need to retrain our brains to ask, what does God want? What does God want? Here's what he wants. Let every person be subject to governing authorities. He says it twice. Let every person be subject to governing authorities. Now, first, I'm going to speak to governing authorities. If you're a governing authority in here, if you are, um, if you're a police officer, if you're a soldier, if you're somebody who is working to uh, write laws, if you're a judge, I'm speaking to you. Your primary job is this, is to do your work as a minister of God. Do your work as a minister of God. Which means, number one, take your job seriously. If you're an officer, if you're a soldier, if you're a judge, take your job seriously. Seriously. Ministers don't get the opportunity to say, well, I'm just doing this job so I can retire. And so what that means is if you're a minister of God, God has placed you where you are because he wants you to be the one who brings peace and justice to this world. Take your job seriously. Um, Don't get lazy. It matters. And then secondly, um, have a holy fear of God. This passage calls Christians to fear you. You know who you should fear? God. Have a holy fear of God. Remember that the authority and power you have is a derivative authority. It's authority that doesn't arise up in you. It's an authority that comes from God. So you should walk on holy ground wherever you go. Have a holy fear fear of God. And the next thing that that means is this, is as a minister of God, what you need to be doing as an officer or a judge is you need to be bringing God's presence, God's character, and God's heart to every situation. And that's easier said than done, isn't it? I'm speaking specifically to those of you who are officers or um, people, um, in charge of condemning criminals or making judgments about that. You are every day inundated with the underbelly of society. And I know that there's some things that you've seen that you cannot unsee. And you know, we thank you for that. But don't grow so jaded 
that you start to see every suspicious character as a criminal. And even when you're starting to enact justice on somebody who's acted like an animal, your job is as a Christian to remember that they're not an animal. They are an image bearer of God. And so we thank you for doing your work, but you have the hard task that your companions who aren't Christians don't have to worry about because your job is not only to bring justice, but also to value them as an image bearer. And that's hard to do, but that's what you're called to do. That's what it means to be a minister. It's no small task. It's no small task. And so I charge you, I don't even make the request. I charge you in the presence of the living God and in front of all these witnesses to treat every person as an image bearer of Christ and to bring God's justice and peace with holy fear. That's your job. Now to the citizens, what is our job? Well, it says we need to be subject to the governing authorities. Now this word subject is where we get the idea. uh, It literally means to lower yourself under to kneel under somebody's authority. It's it's where we get the idea of submit. Now, if you've ever got on your knees for a long period of time, it's not comfortable. It hurts. If you've ever had to submit to somebody else when you didn't like what they had to say, that sucks. If (laughs) If you've ever watched MMA, you'll see that submission is very uncomfortable. Submission is not about your happiness. It's about displaying trust in God. If your pleasure and happiness is your highest goal, you will never submit as God wants you to submit. But if honoring him and loving him and enjoying him is your highest goal, you will live a life of submission. You will commit to submit. So that's what it means. And he gives us three ways to submit. Actually, four. Number one, he, it's holy fear. He says in here, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do good and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is God's servant and avenger who carries out God's wrath. So what does it mean for us to live in submission? You need to have a holy fear of those in authority. Like, you don't get to walk around with a chip on your shoulder like you're above everybody else, including the police officers and soldiers. You don't get to walk around with a chip on your shoulder that you know the best political decisions that our country leaders should be making. You need to have a holy fear because he says, they don't bear the sword in vain. They're packing. So don't be out there, you know, if you break the speed limit, if you uh, steal, if you're dealing drugs, you should be afraid. If you're trying to steal from a neighbor, if you're harming other people, if you're taking advantage of other people, if you're you know, abusing other people, you should have a fear because God has placed people to bear the sword. That's, that's terrifying. But it's also an act of God's love because he knows what we would try to get away with if there was no authority, right? Come on. If there was no fear, there would be times when you would steal. If there was no fear of getting caught, what would you do? I know that I know I would get away with a lot of stuff. But 
what it means to be living in subjection means we, we walk in holy fear, okay? And if you do good, you'll receive good. You'll receive his approval. And, and he says in here, for the most part, he says the idea of these governing figures is they're not out to be terrorists to good conduct. The purpose of police officers is not to roam the street saying, that person looks like a good person. Let's go beat him up. <laughs> the purpose of police officers is that they're getting the bad guys. So if you're, don't be a bad guy because of fear, okay? Secondly, you need to do good and not bad. It says, then do good. Don't do bad. That's what the text says. It's very simple. <laughs> be a law-abiding citizen. Be a law-abiding citizen. Now, here's the deal. We love being a law-abiding citizen when we agree with the laws, don't we? But as soon as we think that the laws are stupid, we just throw them out the door. Reminds me of when I was a little kid. One time I was kicking a basketball on the roof, and it was awesome. And then my dad came out and said, don't kick the basketball on the roof. You're going to break a window. And I was like, whatever. And I took the basketball. He walked in. As soon as I heard the door shut, I went and kicked it beyond the roof, but it went right through the window. (laughs) The reason I didn't listen, I mean, I listened to my dad on all these other rules, like don't run into the street if the basketball goes into the street. I believed in that law. But I thought the law of not kicking a basketball on top of the roof was stupid. And we do the same thing as adults. We, we treat the laws that we agree with with reverence, but the ones we think are stupid, we throw out the window, don't we? Well, as a Christian, you are forfeiting that right. We are to be law-abiding citizens, whether or not you like it. That's what it means to submit. So what does this mean, church? We follow traffic laws as Christians. Speed limits. When it says no U-turn, don't do a U-turn. Um, it means that we don't steal. It means that we follow laws about, um, you know, drinking and driving. It means that if you're a sportsman, you get a fishing license or a hunting license and you don't hunt or fish out of season and you follow the regulations, even at Pyramid Lake when you're like, this is stupid. Nobody can catch fish like this. Little frustrations coming out. It means that if you're a high school student, you follow the drinking age laws. It means that um, you don't cut corners when you're running a business. If you're running a business, you're not paying people cash under the table. It means you're being a law-abiding citizen. That's what it means. Do good, not bad. It's not, it's not uh, complex. It's just very hard to do sometimes, isn't it? Do good, not bad. Okay, the next thing it means is pay your taxes. Look at verse seven. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So pay your taxes. Tax day was last week. If you haven't done it, get your butt up after this service and go work on paying your taxes. And now the reason why Paul had to say this is remember some of the money that Rome was using was going to fund pagan things. And so Christians are like, we don't wanna, we don't wanna fund that. We don't wanna partake in that. And Paul's just like, just pay your taxes and trust God. I'm sure that Paul had Jesus' words in mind. When the religious authorities came to Jesus and said, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And what did Jesus say? 
He said, give me a coin. So they flipped him a coin. He grabbed it. On the coin, Jesus said, whose image and likeness is on the coin? And the response was, well, Caesar's. And he said, well, give to Caesar's what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And what he was saying is this, you're made in the image of God. When it comes to the matter of paying taxes, the dollar bills that we have, it has America written all over them. Give to America what belongs to America and give to God what belongs to God. In other words, pay your taxes and trust God. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's not all going to be used perfectly, but trust God. Pay your taxes and trust God. And then lastly, it says, show respect to whom respect is owed and honor to whom honor is owed. So as citizens, we're supposed to be giving honor and respect. This is an opposition to slander, disrespect. So let me ask you a question. Look at me for a moment. Is there any groups of people in civil authority, whether they be officers, soldiers, lawmakers, or the president, that you are prone to disrespect. As a Christian, you need to repent. Is there anybody in office that you are slandering? And slander is not just what you say out in public. It's also what you say behind closed doors with your close friends. Did you know that the devil's name is slanderer? When you slander those who are in authority that God has instituted, you're partaking in the work of the devil. And so church, you need to stop slandering. I don't care if you're slandering now because you don't like the guy in office or you were slandering, you know, uh, years before with the previous president. As Christians, we lay that down because we trust in God. We trust in God. And some of you need to repent now. Some of you need to go on Facebook and remove some of your posts. We do not slander as Christians because we trust God. Doesn't mean you have to agree. Doesn't mean you have to be pro everything that they're doing. You, not at all. But it means that we honor God. Do you have the humility to do this? You see, the real reason we slander, the real reason we lash out is because we think we need to take vengeance into our own hands. But as Paul already said, he said, we don't need to do that because we need to leave it to the wrath of God for his risen vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So to not slander and to show respect is to leave vengeance to God. That's what it is. And I know that this is really hard, especially when you feel mistreated, especially when you don't feel safe. But this is what we're called to do. Tall order, isn't it? Now, why does this matter? Okay, just to let you know, when Paul was writing this, it was in a lot worse political climate than what we have today. And so I just imagine that these Roman Christians are like, just gritting their teeth. And they're like, you gotta be kidding me, Paul. What? And I'm sure the question came up, what if the government is corrupt? It's the question you're all asking now, aren't you? What if the government is corrupt? What if they cause us to do things that God doesn't want us to do? Then how do we respond? Well, I think if we take the whole of the Bible into this, we could say this, that there's two times in all of scripture where it is permissible to resist government. 
There's two times where it's permissible. The first time you must resist government. The second time you may resist government. Okay, so track with me. You must resist government whenever government establishes laws that cause you to violate God's laws. You must resist government as a Christian whenever, whenever government institutes laws that command you to violate God's laws. So, um, as it is in several countries, um, if you become a Christian, they say you cannot worship. If that ever becomes the case here, guess what we're still going to be doing? Worshiping. Because God commands us to worship. And it may not be in a setting like this. It may be in a bunch of little homes. It may be underground. We might have to go incognito and everything, which is kind of cool. But we (laughs) will worship because God commands it. In China, we've had many brothers and sisters who've had uh, gotten pregnant with baby girls. And it was commanded that they abort those baby girls. And guess what those Christians did? They had those baby girls because they fear God more than they fear man. So if government ever calls us to do something that is sinful or to stop doing something that God calls us to do, we resist. Okay, that's a must. Now here's a may. You may resist if government uh, institute laws that enables a flagrant violation of God's character and heart. You may resist whenever God, or excuse me, whenever government institute laws that enable a flagrant disregard to God's heart and character. So for example, in the 1960s in America, in the South, there was a a bunch of Jim Crow laws that separated whites and blacks from being together. They couldn't worship together. They couldn't go to school together. They couldn't sit in the same places on the bus. And eventually a bunch of Christians rose up and said, this is enough. God views every person, regardless of skin color, as an image bearer of him. And he calls us to be together. And they protested and we're thankful for it, aren't we? We're thankful for it. Because Christians eventually said, this is enough. And so what had happened is, is for a long time, there was a lot of Christians who read this passage and said, you know what, I'm going to honor God, even though I don't like how I'm going to be mistreated. But eventually the boiling came over the pot. And that was a permissible time to do it. So whenever God's, the command for us to break God's law, or whenever there's laws that, it, that enable a flagrant disregard of God's heart, we can resist. But how we resist matters, church. So how do we resist? How do we see civil disobedience happening in the scriptures? Well, there's a few ways. Number one, you can flee. You don't have to stay where you are. Did you know that Jesus had to flee as a child? Herod was trying to kill Jesus and called for a slaughter of all the babies in that region. And so Jesus's parents, Mary and Joseph, fled to Egypt. That is a thing you can do. If it gets so bad, you can flee. There's people, there's Christians fleeing for their lives right now. You can flee. Secondly, you can civilly disobey. You can just say, well, I'm going to peaceably disagree with you, government. Okay, we see this in the book of Exodus when Pharaoh commanded that the Hebrew midwives kill all the babies because Pharaoh was scared that the Hebrews were becoming such a big people that they were going to overtake Egypt. And what did the midwives do? They said, no, we're not going to kill the babies. We're going to preserve their life. And it said that God blessed them. Um, 
You can also protest. My favorite example of protesting in the Bible is with Daniel. Daniel's an old man. He's one of uh, Darius's highest officers in his nation. And uh, Darius calls uh, a thing where he says, nobody can pray to any God except me. And what does Daniel do? He goes to his home. He goes upstairs, throws open the doors, goes outside so it's, everybody can see it. And he prays to God, the God of the Bible. It was an in-your-face protest. It was Daniel saying, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to pray to God. And he was thrown to the lions then. Which, by the way, if we act in resistance, even if it's civil disobedience, you need to be prepared for its consequences. So they protested. Another example of protesting is in the New Testament. The Sanhedrin commanded the apostles to stop preaching Christ. And what did they do? They went the next day into the temple and started preaching Christ. (laughs) So that was an example. And then occasionally, in extreme circumstances, there may be a situation for a just war. We see this in the book of Judges. But by and large, church family, Let me call you back to this, that unless the government is calling us to participate in sin, we submit ourselves to the government. And we hate that as Americans, don't we? Because we love our constitutional rights. We love the Bill of Rights. We love it. I love it. It's amazing. I I love living in this country. But let's be honest. If government asks us to lay down some of those rights, is it sin? No. So what would that mean for us? We comply. We submit. And if you're unwilling to do so, you need to ask yourself the question, which is your highest authority, the Constitution or the Bible? As Christians, we say the Bible. As hard and terrible as that might be, we say the Bible. Really, if you're having trouble with that, ask yourself that question. And if you are saying, I'm not going to give this up for the sake of Jesus, is Jesus really your highest love in your life? Okay. So back to the question. These guys in Rome are like, why does it matter? Can I just follow Jesus and then live my own life? Like, can I just follow Jesus and forget about Rome? Why does it matter? Paul begins You know, through this whole section, he's addressing it. And he's basically saying this. It matters because how you live shows who you follow. How you live says something about who you follow. If Christians were out there just breaking laws and and living obstinately and rebelliously and saying, you know what, I'm the final authority in my life. What does that say about Jesus? If Christians are out there breaking the speed limit, what it's really saying is my life is more important than everybody else's safety. What does that say about Jesus? If Christians are cutting corners to get ahead, what does that say about Jesus? You see, the reason why this all matters is because what Paul said in chapter 12, verse five is this, is when you become a Christian, you become a member of the body of Christ. And what that means is this, is that when you become a Christian, you're no longer representing you, you're representing him. I'm no longer representing the tiny little kingdom of Kyle Bateson in Sparks, Nevada, 2018. I'm representing the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. 
what a wonderful thing, but it comes at some losses to me. It comes at some losses to me. So it's representing him. We're the body of Christ. And, and, and think about that word Christ. Many of you know, but some of you who are new, new to the Bible, you don't know this. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title. It means king sent by God. We are here to represent another kingdom, not ours, not America, not you, not Sparks. The kingdom of God in heaven, the kingdom of Jesus, who is the king of kings. And so we, have to, we don't even have to guess when it, when it comes to what does it look like to represent that kingdom because he's already showed us, hasn't he? And what did Jesus do to show us his kingdom? He laid aside his rights, his privileges, his preferences as God, came to earth as a human and submitted to the humans whom he created even to the point of death because he trusted God the Father in heaven. If there is anybody who didn't deserve to die, it was Jesus. And yet he still submitted. He was perfect. You and I are sinners and rebels at heart. Jesus was not. And he submitted. He submitted to the crowds when they cried, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Even though he made sure that they got fed all week as God. He submitted to the soldiers when they punched him in the face and ripped out his beard and mocked him, even though he made sure that they had the muscles to even do that. He submitted to them when they nailed him to the tree that he spoke into existence. And it's interesting that Jesus gets nailed to a cross, isn't it? What was the cross used for? To punish rebels in Rome. And if Jesus was one who was never a rebel, but we find himself being killed as a rebel, we have to ask the question, why? And the reason is because he's taking our place. He never rebelled, yet we do all the time. We, not only do we resist government, we resist God. And for that reason, Jesus took our place so that we could be uh, viewed and approved of by God in heaven. That's the love of Jesus. He gave up his life so you could know God. And he did it because he trusted in God's purposes. And because of Jesus's trust, many are saved, including us who sit here today. So as recipients of this kind of love, we're called to embody that kind of love. D.L. Moody, an old dead preacher, said, if a hundred people are interested in God, one will read the Bible, 99 will read the Christian. And so if the world is looking at us as Christians to see what God is like, can you imagine a world if Christians are here, step forward, say, you know what, as citizens, we're just gonna, we're gonna submit to the government and everything that doesn't call us to sin because we're here for the benefit, not just of ourselves, but of everybody else. Can you imagine a world where citizens who are Christians are saying, you know what, we will gladly lay down our preferences and our rights for the sake of others because we trust God. Can you imagine a world where police officers and judges and, and uh, lawmakers are Christians and they actually function honoring God? The world would be curious about him, wouldn't it? It would be wonderful. And you might ask the question, well, does that make me a pansy? 
Does that make me a doormat who just has to lay down my life and get stomped on and just told what to do? No, it shows you to be a Christian. A Christian. And I would argue this, that it takes a lot more courage to lay down your preferences and your rights for the sake of Jesus than it does violently defending them. It makes you a Christian. What if the world looked at Christians laying down their rights, preferences, and even life. And they said, man, if Jesus is worth dying for, perhaps he's worth living for. That's our hope from this passage. So as rough as it may be, we commit ourselves to the God who always has our good in mind. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, help us. Lord, you know how resistant we are to this. And I know, God, that... um, A lot of our resistance is based on terrible things that have happened in history that we don't want to see repeated. But God, help us to have the kind of faith that submits to you no matter what. And I pray that as Christians, that faith would be put on full display so that people could see you and know you and trust you and want something to do with Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.